Hey guys, so unfortunately, uh, due to me being sick, we were unable to record Scientology Part 4 this week, but I did have the privilege of interviewing Tony Ortega earlier in the week. Tony is well known for his daily blog about the Church of Scientology called The Underground Bunker. Previously, he was the executive editor of The Raw Story, a journalist at The New Times LA, the editor-in-chief of The Broward Palm Beach New Times, and editor-in-chief of The Village Voice. He has been seen on documentaries like HBO's Going Clear and Leah Remini's Scientology in the Aftermath on A&E. In 2015, he authored The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, How the Church of Scientology Tried to Destroy Paulette Cooper, about journalist Paulette Cooper, and the Church of Scientology's attempts to silence her after her own book was published. So with that, here's my interview with Tony Ortega, and we'll be back next week with Scientology Part 4. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. It's a it's an awesome way to kick off doing interviews for us. Sure. Um, Glad to do it. Yeah. So to start off, can you just give a little history into your career and, and how you got to the point of being the main source for all Scientology news? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of a tale, but I'll go into it. Um, uh, I, I was a college English instructor who changed careers, basically, um, and... Got real lucky. I went to work for a publication in Phoenix, Arizona. That uh, at the time, you, in the 1990s, man, journalism and media was a completely different landscape. And and these newspapers were doing so well. They had room for somebody, you know, a new person to come in and and to develop their own specialty. And right off the bat, I got very lucky, and I landed this story. Uh, about uh, Rick, Rick Ross, who's, who's now known as this nationally known uh, cult expert. He was less known back then. I wrote basically the first major profile of him. And uh, his story involves Scientology. Now, I'm, I'm originally from Los Angeles, so I think growing up there, you have a basic awareness of what that is. And I'd always been kind of curious about it. So I just, I wrote this story. I was very fascinated by it. And the nice thing about that publication is that, um, you know, I, 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 I was given freedom to come back to that subject once in a while. You know, so a couple of years later, there was another interesting local story about that that I did. And then in 1999, I actually moved to Los Angeles again, where I was from, with that same company. And now I was really interested because now I could write stories that were really important about Scientology right there in one of its world headquarters. And while I was doing that, I wrote a story about a woman named Tori Christman. I wrote a story about an attorney named Graham Barry. During that time, I would get these emails encouraging me, you know, keep going. This is good stuff. You're on the right track. And they were from, um, you know, somebody named Paulette. And I thought, you know, I, I, if you study, the Scientology as a, as a, study Scientology as a subject, you very soon learn about the, the story of Paulette Cooper because nobody – faced worse retaliation and, and, and dirty tricks than Paulette Cooper. And I was amazed because she kind of disappeared in the eighties. And I couldn't imagine that she was reaching out to a journalist across the country and giving him a pat on the back, but it was her. So I, I, I just thought that was great that I had this private little relationship with her. Uh, years later, I moved with that company all over the place. I, I, I was an editor for them in Kansas City. I was an editor-in-chief for them in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then in uh, 2007, I moved up to Los Angeles to become the editor-in-chief of the Village Voice. And at that time, um, I started writing about Scientology again because 
not too long after I got there, the whole anonymous thing happened. And Scientology exploded as a subject again. And I was fascinated again. And so I started writing about uh, Scientology uh, once in a while for The Voice while I was the editor-in-chief. And um, I think it was in 2011, somebody reached out to me telling me that Paulette Cooper was outraged about something. And uh, what she was unhappy about was that Tom Cruise was about to be given a Humanitarian of the Year award from the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And Paulette's Jewish, and she was just really outraged that this famous Jewish organization was going to be giving a Scientologist a humanitarian award. So I reached out to her and reminded her that, you know, years ago she had sent me these nice emails, and we reconnected. And I wrote a little story about um, how Paulette Cooper is just really unhappy about this. And it exploded. It was just, you know, people were fascinated by this subject. So later that year, I, I told her that I wanted to write just a basic story about her history to remind everybody what she had gone through. And that's when I, Ian, that's when I really started to realize, I guess that was late 2011, I started to realize that, that what people seemed to think they knew about Paulette, the sort of official story, the accounts that were, were circulating on the internet, once I got to talk to her and really dig into the... Um, records, I realized that the story really hadn't been told properly. And so I, I wrote a version of it for The Voice, and then she and I kept talking because one thing that I had never been told was that well before she was involved with this whole battle with Scientology, she grew up in Belgium during the war, and both of her parents had been killed at Auschwitz. And then how she escaped the war and escaped the Holocaust was an amazing story. And, 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 and here's the thing. Here's what was so exciting for me as a journalist. She didn't know how she'd escaped the Holocaust. And so that's what really got me inspired was um, we actually heard, once I wrote a story about her and the Village Boys, that publication used to have a huge reach. We actually heard from people in Europe that remembered her. And so that we, she and I went down those avenues and we started to piece together the amazing story of how she uh, escaped Holocaust. So that's when I was starting to realize this is a story that is so complex and inspiring and scary. This really deserves a book treatment. And so that's why I decided in September 2012, I bent the voice for five years. I decided to leave. And that's when I started to work on my book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, about Paulette. The Holocaust aspect of it was something that I didn't know about until I read the book, and and that was a really fascinating, unexpected aspect of the whole story. Yeah, when I started working on started working with her, the under, the knowledge about that was so bad. The her Wikipedia article actually claimed that she was born in Auschwitz. That's how little actual knowledge there was about what, about what had happened to her. But then she didn't know either. She was born in in uh, in, in Amsterdam. I'm sorry, in um, in in Belgium, and um, her parents were sent to Auschwitz. And 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 the saddest, the saddest, I'll tell you, the saddest moment that I had while I was reporting that part of it was that I, uh, you know, the thing about the Nazis is they were actually incredible bureaucrats and they kept records of everything. And so you can actually get a lot of information if you're researching in that period. And uh, um, 
the, the Nazis ruled over Belgium in 10 days in 1940, and then Belgium was under occupation. Um, uh, Paulette's older sister, Susie, was born around that time. And then in 1942, uh, July uh, 22nd, 26th, is when Paulette was born. So I was looking for records about her father and her mother and um, her father, Chaim Buchholz. Uh, I finally found his arrest record and the, the Nazis um, arrested him on a train on July 22nd, 1942. And my heart sank when I saw that. I didn't even want to tell Paulette. I was so, it was so devastating, but I, I called her up and I said, brace yourself. I have to tell you something. She said, what? I said, your father was arrested four days before you were born. He never laid eyes on you. Wow. And that's the first time she ever heard that. She didn't know that. So he was then taken. Um, there was a brand new, um, there, was a, there was a fairly new uh, concentration camp there uh, called the Breendonk camp. And we have photos of the Jews being sort of, sort of, um, you know, grouped there as they're waiting to go on a new transport center called Mechelen. And he left Mechelen uh, to go to Auschwitz. And, you know, again, the Nazis, we have his train number. You know, we know, we know what date he was shipped from Belgium to Poland uh, to the Auschwitz camp. And then he was killed soon after. So she, so, so her mother gave birth to Paulette alone with, with uh, Paulette and Susie. And, um, um, then we had to figure out, okay, what happened to the mom? And so well, the best we could figure out was that um, she was there with her two kids in hiding, basically. And at first, when the Nazis occupied Belgium, they were um, leaving the local Jews mostly alone. If you were a foreign Jew, if you were a Polish Jew, they would immediately put you on a train. And that's why the, the, the book holsters were in such trouble because they had come from Poland. And uh, so she had to hide. So, so um, her mom was hiding. And then um, at some point we, we determined talking to some family members, she just had to go down the street and get some stuff like food. And she had to risk it. So she put her two kids in, you know, in the apartment they were hiding in went down in the street to get something and, and, and she'd probably done it several times and, and she was nabbed and then she was taken to uh, Auschwitz and she was killed. So um, then the two little kids were, were taken care of by some family members. And um, at some point the two girls were then seized as well. And we don't know exactly. Paulette said there's a family story about being sold out for a, you know, a sack of sugar or something. And there may have been something like that, but that was one I wasn't able to really nail down uh, very well. But however it happened after being hidden by various family members, they were then taken to Mechelen themselves and were prepared to be sent to Auschwitz. And we even know the train that Susie and Paulette were supposed to be on uh, to go to Auschwitz, but they weren't on that train. So then the question became, how did they get out of it? Because then we have a record of them not too much, not too late after that in a, in an orphanage. And so it, it, the thing about that particular camp, we, we know the, I even have a photograph of the commandant. that's not the 
uh, commandant of the camp, and he was notoriously corrupt. So, and, and, and this family that helped them out explained to us that, yeah, they were bribed. And so basically they, there was nothing they could do for the parents. But once the little girls were taken away, then these friends of the family scrambled and raised money and black market goods to pay off this Nazi commandant so they could take the girls to an orphanage. And that's what we figured happened. So that's how she managed to survive. Like I said, that was something that completely unexpected that I didn't know about her story. When it, and so that was, um, that was really fascinating to read that stuff in the book. When I was digging into Scientology to do this, to, to do the outlines for this series, that's why I came across Paulette Cooper. And I'm like, man, she really deserves a, an episode of her own. So I reached out to you. Can you just give a little background about how she ended up getting involved with Scientology? Right. So then, so she, she survives the Holocaust, but she's in an orphanage. Right. And she and Susie are then separated, which is really bad. But um, the, an aunt was uh, not thinking clearly, obviously. But they got very lucky that there was a Belgian woman in New York who had met this nice couple that were childless. And the woman in New York knew about Paulette. And so she approached this New York couple and said, um, you don't have any children. Would you, would you be interested in adopting one? And they, she told her about how lovely this little girl was. And this was Ted and Stella Cooper. Uh, Ted was a jewelry merchant in, in Manhattan. And he became very interested. And so they decided they wanted to adopt Paulette. But the problem was, there was various problems because the aunt was... Uh, had separated the kids. It was It's kind of a mess. I go to it in, into my book. But eventually the Coopers put their foot down and, and, and got Paulette out of there. Um, she was six years old at the time and uh, brought her over to the United States. And so she grew up in, um, you know, pretty good circumstances. At first it was very difficult for her because she only spoke French. And um, she she had to adapt to this very different way of living. But, you know, the Coopers loved her and gave her, you know, a lot of, things she needed and she almost right away started talking about how she wanted to be a writer I mean very young age she knew she wanted to be a writer um, and she did very well in school after she finally learned English um, and she um, went to uh, Brandeis University uh, and and pretty quickly came up with the idea that she was gonna she got she got a, a master's degree in psychology and her first job out of college was psychoanalyzing advertising for advertising firms and uh which i guess is a thing i don't know and what she she was then hoping to do was to get into one of the advertising firms herself as a as a a writer and then use that to get into magazine writing well i mean this was 1966 i mean this was not exactly a time when women had very many jobs writing and advertising uh, but she managed to get a, a job. She she jokes about how um, Elizabeth Moss plays her in in Mad Men, um, and because she says that's exactly who I was. I was a woman making my way, riding on Madison Avenue, and then she managed to turn that into a freelance magazine career. And she just says she was looking for something that would get her attention. She just knew that the way New York media worked, that you needed a story that had a lot of you know, pizzazz uh, to it. And and also keep in mind her Holocaust background, she was really personally alarmed by the things she was starting to hear about Scientology. One of her friends at the advertising firm 
had gotten involved with it and, and it, it ended up very badly. He, he cornered her one day and um, said that he, he had learned through Scientology auditing that he was Jesus Christ and that as God, he had decided to rape her. And she managed to uh, get him uh, talking enough uh, to push him out of her apartment. But uh, she was just really alarmed by the whole situation. But then, you know, the writer in her kicked in and said, wait a minute, if, if this brilliant, really cool friend of mine has been turned into this idiot by Scientology, mm -hmm. maybe there's a story there. What is this stuff? And so she starts, inter she starts learning about Scientology and she decides this, this might be the thing that really gets me noticed. So what she did was she signed up for some courses. At that, at that time, the New York org was um, near where Macy's is today, uh, the big Macy's in Herald Square. Across from there, there's a, a hotel that used to house New York org. And she went there and just signed up and did a weekend's worth of courses and learned these basic exercises. They're, they're basically staring exercises just to get a sense of what it was like. And while she was there, she picked up a few papers to get some, and just, just the small exposure she had, again, really alarmed her. Uh, she got a sense of what a totalitarian organization this was. And so that set her on her way. And she started working on this um, article. She, um, it took her a while. Uh, I think she she went for that weekend of courses in 1968, and it wasn't until the end of 1969 that her article was uh, printed in a, a magazine at that time in London uh, called Queen. And in fact, it, it's just trivia, but it was the last episode, I mean, sorry, it was the last issue that Queen put out before it was subsumed into Harper's Bazaar. So if you can get a copy of the very last issue of Queen Magazine from December 1969, you'll find this story from uh, Paulette. It's got this bizarre title, which she did not write, uh, about Scientology. And by, by that time, by the time that article came out, in fact, the way she knew that it was, you know, came out on, on the street and was on for sale, she got two death threats the first day. So, and by that time, she already knew that something was going on. People were keeping tabs on her, and um, it just it just inspired her to do even more. And so, by the time the article came out in late 1969, she was already she had already decided that she was going to go ahead and turn it into a book as well. And, and in fact, if you find that article, you'll see it says from the forthcoming book, "The Scandal of Scientology." She already had her title, but she didn't have a book contract at that time, and uh, it took a while. But she then um, added more to the material, corresponded with the Scientology official in England, and in June 1971, came out with her book, The Scandal of Scientology. But I mean, I asked you a question, how did she get in all this? She was truly just a journalist who felt that this was an exciting story that would put her on a map. The one thing about the, her initial, in the book, her initial, um, the courses she took, it was something that we didn't really get into in, in our um, episodes because there's so much information with Scientology, but the bull baiting exercises, that was really, um, it was really creepy how it's described in the book, the bull baiting, I mean, it was really, really intense, and then her getting called up for the ethics meeting and then, and then taking off, it was just really... Uh, it's a really unsettling thing to put your to put yourself into you know what she was going through with that. 
Well, that's one of the things I, I really set out to do. I mean, if you talk to Paulette, she's, she's kind of, she's less um, affected by it, it seems like. But when I, when she was telling me this, those, these stories, I was frightened. I thought, this is, this is terrifying. And so I wanted to convey it that way because obviously, I mean, I mean, Paulette's just got ice in her veins. She just doesn't let anything bother her. But um, I think anybody else would have just been really spooked by that whole experience. And that's what it's, that's what it's intended to do. I mean, uh, you talk to any Scientologist. And, and the funny thing is, a lot of people who leave Scientology will tell you that those are the parts of Scientology they, they miss the most that they actually enjoyed those exercises. Now, if, you know, I've read so much of Hubbard's voluminous output. I try to focus on the big picture about where he came from, what he was trying to do, the various levels from top to bottom. And if, and if you really, you know, buy into this idea that he was somehow an adventurer who had discovered the secrets of the universe, what these staring exercises have to do with it doesn't, I, I still, I think most Scientologists never even stop to ask themselves, why were we yelling at each other trying not to flinch? What the heck does that have to do with discovering that you're an immortal being that's been living countless times in various parts of the galaxy? And, you know, the answer to that is that Hubbard was trained as a um, hypnotist. He was a stage hypnotist who uh, his friends say was very good at making pe- a whole room of people go under. And these exercises are like that. They're intended to put you into a trance state and remove bit by bit your resistance to the idea that Scientology has the answer to everything. These are conditioning exercises. They have nothing to do with Hubbard's overall philosophy or cosmology at all. They're simply exercises they put you through to make you as compliant as possible. And, uh, and it's funny to me that the people who leave and will complain about the way it's being run today and the fundraising, but they'll look back on those pull baiting sessions with fondness. It's really odd. Yeah, that is really strange. So you said that, that she initially got, got a couple death threats from that article can you go into some of the the tactics that started to be used against her when her um, when her book came out in 1971? Yeah, so she I mean a lot of these are really well known, but others we learned for the first time by digging into FBI records and things. But um, by 1967, Hubbard had Elron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, had created his own spy wing called the Guardian's Office. And it was a very sophisticated intelligence operation. And when Hubbard, you know, decided that someone was going to be a target of it, you know, they would do all kinds of amazing things to keep track of somebody. I found a document showing that by March 71, at least, possibly earlier, they were keeping daily tabs on Paulette. And she didn't know this. She did not know this. Even when I started researching this recently, she didn't, she wasn't aware of this. March 71, they were keeping daily tabs on her. They knew months ahead of time where her book was coming out, who was publishing it. They made attempts to um, dissuade the publisher. They used attorneys to send threatening telegrams to the publisher. And she started seeing all kinds of bizarre things happening in her private life. Suddenly she was a, a, a subscriber to pornographic magazines. 
and she'd have to write to these publishers and say, take me off your list. Um, she found that um, uh, things were being written about her on walls and bathrooms in Manhattan. And she was getting calls, dirty calls from men in the middle of the night. Um, some of them were so bizarre. We were never able to absolutely confirm. She, she got a call from a friend who said she had seen a, a photo of Paulette naked in a newspaper. And we were never able to uh, track that one down. That's just, I mean, but, but you can imagine how it was making Paulette feel that she, one of the things she figured out was that um, they always seemed to know where she was going to be. And so, for example, she went to give a talk somewhere, there would be two or three Scientologists in the audience heckling her. And so at one point, she got tired of the fact that no matter where she went, they always knew where she was going to be. She called up um, the telephone company. Back then, it was just one company, of course. And a technician came over, went down into the basement of her building, and came back up and said, yeah, somebody's been messing with your line. Uh, so so they, they had been tapping her phone, and that's how they knew. So they were tapping her phone. They were sending her pornographic magazines. They were heckling her at events. It was all meant, all of this was meant to just make it so that you feel so paranoid that you don't want to have anything to do with that subject anymore. That's the whole point of this. And that's the level of it initially. And then in uh, 70, even after her book came out, and this is what I think what drove Hubbard nuts, was that even after her book came out, she continued to make appearances on television, on radio. She helped other journalists with their stories. And the Guardian's office was really upset that she was this sort of ongoing threat. And so we, we find a document um, in fall of 72, a year after the book came out, where there's this notation like, okay, it's time to get her institutionalized. <clears throat> it's like, wow, what's that mean, right? Well, so the most elaborate operation they actually pulled off against her was that in December 1972, they sent a woman to her apartment. She, her cousin happened to be visiting her that day. And this woman uh, knocked on the door, and she, um, she said she was canvassing for the United Farm Workers, uh, Cesar Chavez, and she had a petition on a clipboard, and she was hoping that Paulette would sign it and give a small donation. So uh, Paulette said, sure, left the woman in her apartment, and um, went to get her checkbook. And what her cousin told me, I, I talked to her about it, they both noticed that although it was very cold outside, this was December, um, it was very warm in the apartment, but she never took her gloves off. They only thought of that later. They, re they realized later. So Paulette gave her a check. The woman gave her this uh, clipboard. Paulette puts her left hand out to grab the clipboard with her fingers underneath it and then uses her right hand to sign the document. Well, we found a document later uh, which describes that they had what what they um, do in this situation is what you don't see is underneath the clipboard there's a, a blank piece of paper and when Paulette puts her fingers on it when she holds the clipboard she leaves a fingerprint. They then she and and um, the instructions on another operation is very explicit. Before Joy can sign it, you quickly put a piece of another piece of paper over that one to preserve Paulette's fingerprint. And she goes on her way. 
five days later, I think, a uh, bomb threat <clears throat> is mailed to the Church of Scientology in New York. And it's this bizarre thing. It's got crazy language, barely literate, about how I'm going to um, bomb you or something. They ended up getting two of those, one of which had Paulette's fingerprints on the back. And so the, the Church of Scientology went to the FBI. The FBI interviewed Paulette. Paulette didn't think anything was up. I mean, what, she hadn't done anything. And they ended up indicting her. And in, in, in summer of 1973, she was indicted in May 1973. She was facing trial in October 1973. She was looking at 15 years in prison. Um, because the government, the prosecutor believed she had written, actually written these crazy illiterate notes to the Church of Scientology threatening to blow them up because one of them had her fingerprint on the back. This was the most sophisticated operation they ran against her. And for the first time I found out how she got out of that was that she had a really good attorney who um, went to the prosecutor, uh, went over the prosecutor's head to the uh, boss of the top prosecutor in Manhattan and explained to him how terrible the case was because they were going to have to, you know, uh, show all the harassment she'd been through and everything. And, and the prosecutors dropped it. But she, as, as a, uh, as a concession, she had to spend a year getting, um, um, therapy, which is ironic because Scientology doesn't believe in therapy, (laughs) but the court does. And so she managed to get out of that, but she was still not, exonerated really and um she had she always years she had this hanging over her head she she always said that if if this indictment ever made became public she'd be ruined because the public would just hear that a woman reporter tried to blow up a church they wouldn't hear that you know this was the science church of scientology doing dirty tricks you know because it wasn't well known then what scientology was capable of and it wasn't until years later when the FBI raided the Church of Scientology itself and documents were found showing that she was the target of this operation and, and many others, that uh, it finally broke in the press in, in 1978 that she had been targeted this way. And, and she was really relieved when the Washington Post broke that story in 1978. But that's, that gives you some idea of, of the lengths they were willing to go to to try and destroy her and many other operations all the way up to the present day. I found out she didn't even know this. She was regularly having lunch with a, a guy in New York who always liked to keep tabs with her, a friend of hers. And um, they would always talk about Scientology and what's the latest. I had to inform her that guy was a well-known Scientology spy. She had no idea. They were keeping tabs on her into the 2010s. So this is, this is uh, incredible history. There were many other operations they ran against her, but but the, the bomb threats was the most serious. In the book, you give some examples of publications that came out before her book or even her article, her magazine article came out that were critical of Scientology. What do you think made her book different in the, in the eyes of Scientology uh, yeah. that made them go after her so much? Yeah, great question, because you're right. There had been some really good articles. Um, and, uh, in fact, I mean, Dianetics, the thing that started all this was L. Ron Hubbard's book, Dianetics, came out in May 9th, 1950. Within a, it was immediately just trashed by, I mean, the Scientific American said something like there's more claims with no evidence per page than any publication put out in history. And then 
1952, Martin Gardner, famous um, math writer from Scientific American, he took Hubbard apart. I mean, he destroyed Hubbard in a publication. And then uh, in the 60s, there were various articles. Oh, the Daily Mail really exposed Hubbard in, in the late 60s. Uh, so, no, you're right. Paulette was not the first to write about Dianetics or Scientology. She was not the first to write about Hubbard. But I think the fact that um, if you look at the other book that came out, there's one book that came out before hers, and it's a very good book by a man named George Malco called Scientology, The Now Religion, very well written. But it's very sort of academic and, and, and erudite in its tone, um, very neutral, um, and he's trying to be very balanced and, and he takes apart Hubbard's ideas with a scalpel. It's really fascinating. But he kind of buys the whole idea that Scientology really does have 15 million people, which is ridiculous. And he kind of, you know, kind of lets them off the hook a few times. Uh, also, it was a hardback, and I don't know if it sold very many copies. Paulette's book comes out a year later. It's a paperback. It's, it's, it's positioned to sell, and it's put out by a publisher who puts out books in places like train stations, right? I mean, this is going to reach the average people and it's harsh i mean from the first page i mean the the, the title scandal of scientology and she brings up every scandal scientology's ever had and she's just relentless so in that way that her book was the first that was really really critical and then i think the other thing that um i think two things happened that made her the target she was first of all she kept going um, I think if she had just put out the book and did nothing else, they might have left her alone. But she kept uh, making TV appearances, radio appearances, helping other journalists with their stories, connecting people. And um, I think it was at a time, you have to understand the time too, from 67 to 75, Hubbard was at sea running Scientology from a ship called the Apollo because he'd basically been kicked out of the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Um, and so they, they ran Scientology from the Mediterranean and the Atlantic and then finally the Caribbean during that time. And I think by 75, he was sick and tired of it. And he wanted to come back to land. And so I think, I think he felt that Paulette's work was literally making it hard for him to come back to the United States because his, his reputation was being trashed. And, and then ultimately, I think probably the, the most important thing was here was this lovely young woman. In fact, her code name in the documents was Miss Lovely. That's why I came up with a title, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. So here's this beautiful young woman in Manhattan um, continuing to work against Scientology. And I think it just drove Miss Hubbard mad because, you know, he, he it's one thing if it's a, a, another guy that he's fighting with, but a, a petite woman in Manhattan, I think it just drove him nuts. And so that's why he really wanted to have her destroyed. Circling back to the lengths that they were willing to go to destroy her, one of the scariest things that I that I found in the book was that there were Scientology spies that had befriended her during this whole thing, and one of them specifically was the guy named Jerry that was able to move in with right. her. Uh, can you elaborate specifically on on that guy? Because that is a fascinating uh, and very scary aspect. Yeah, it's it's just amazing the lengths that Scientology will go. Um, Don Alverzo uh, was his original code name. I'm not going to say his real name for now, Ian, just just for to be careful. Right. But Don Alverzo um, was the bag man, 
right? He was the guy, like when they were, when they decided they wanted to break into the IRS and find out what the IRS was saying about Scientology, he was the guy that brought the burglary tools and um, this, uh, this, this piece of technology. Um, it, it looked like, uh, you know, you, you plug something in an outlet and it gives you multiple outlets. It looked like that, but it was actually a radio transmitter. Yeah. And they just plugged that into an outlet in the conference room, main conference room at the IRS headquarters in D.C. Um, so he that he was the guy with ice in his veins that you hired to actually break into buildings and get the stuff you needed. And the reason why he was so cool and calm was he had been a helicopter, combat helicopter top pilot in Vietnam. And so this stuff was child's play to him. And so he... Um, was doing some really interesting um, dirty work for them. And in 72, when they, they did the uh, bomb threats caper, and then, in, uh, and then she was indicted in May 73, Paulette was just, you know, a wreck. Um, she couldn't keep anything down. She was losing weight. She was chain smoking. She was basically her whole, the whole, a whole day would go by with putting her, nothing in her body but cigarette smoke and vodka. And she was just, you know, she was planning to kill herself if this trial actually went off in, in October. She knew that she'd be ruined. And so she was a complete wreck. Her, her boyfriend basically just, you know, decided not to have anything to do with her anymore. And she wasn't taking care of her apartment or her dog. And then the Scientologist that had already befriended her and moved into the building as part of the operation then told her that she had this friend named Jerry and you know, Jerry's looking for a place to live. Why don't you let him move into your apartment? You guys can share the rent and he can help you out. And she thought it was a good idea. And so this guy, Jerry moved in, in May, 1973 and he lived with her from May to September, 1973. And over that time, she, she became aware that every evening he would go up to the roof, to the, the pool where there was a, a phone and he would spend time on that phone. Well, now we know he was going up there to make his daily report to the church about what she'd been through that day. Um, and so, yes, this is how bold Scientology was. They actually got a Scientology spy, Don Alverso, who was going under the name Jerry Levin, to live with Paulette Cooper from May to September. So it wasn't enough to frame her for a crime she did not commit and have her facing 15 years in prison. They wanted daily reports on how badly she was suffering. And it wasn't until in September 73, only a month before the trial was supposed to start, she had another friend, an attorney, who had a massive Scientology um, document collection. And she was going, she would go over, one of the things that she would do to try to feel better, so she'd go to his apartment and leaf through stuff, do a little research and make, it, make her feel a little better. And she was going through his Scientology magazine and she ran into the name Jerry Levin. And so she came back, she brought it back to the apartment, she showed it to him, and he was like, oh, come on, it's a common name, it's not me, what are you talking about? You think I'd live with you and be a Scientologist? That weekend he left and never came back. Wow. He'd been made, yeah. So uh, one of the challenges I had in my, that's a famous part of her story, that was well known before I even started to, researchers that Scientology managed to get a spy in her own apartment. And um, one of the things that we set out to do was who was this guy? And it was not easy, uh, but we eventually managed to figure out 
not only that Jerry Levin was this Don Alverso guy, but who Don Alverso was. And he's, he lives in Long Island today. And I called him up and uh, he was really slick and acted like he didn't know what I was talking about. But we know it's him. And uh, it's a shame. I wish he, you know, there's nothing that can be done with about him today, 40 years later. I wish he'd, you know, decided to talk to me, but he didn't. Does the fair game stuff like this, does it still exist today like it did in the past? I mean, the internet age, you would think, would put a stop to some of it to a degree. It's actually made it easier for them to carry out fair game. Because, you know, the thing about um, Scientology is, and I try to explain this to people, they never will change because Hubbard wrote all these uh, procedures down between 1955 and 1965. And he talked about how to use lawsuits to, to punish people, how to, you know, if a reporter starts looking into us, start making up things about their, their own crimes, um, use, use, uh, use sex uh, to smear people, um, all of these things Hubbard wrote, you know, laid down. And, and they, you know, the basis of Scientology is to follow the rules that Hubbard created. Well, he died in 1986. He can't change them. And so they just, you know, they can't help themselves. They just do it over and over. The same exact, there's some new lawsuits, for example, right now that are, that are gradually working their way through the courts. And Everything Scientology is doing today is exactly the same way they treated lawsuits in the past. They are so predictable. But yeah, one of the things, they claim that there's no fair game. The reason is that, so Hubbard, in you know, I think it was 67, actually create, created the policy where he called it that. That any, anybody that's um, attacking the church is fair game. You can, a Scientologist can do anything to them, destroy them, whatever, and face no discipline. That's the whole point of the policy was, was, was not that to say that we need to go after people. That was a given, but just to say, okay, if, if a Scientologist goes out and commits a crime, harming one of our enemies, we're not going to punish them. And he called that fair game. The net, but right around that time, Hubbard was running into one of his biggest, biggest problems. He was being investigated in Australia and, um, he needed to make, uh, he needed to pretend that he was making some changes. And so he came out with a bizarre policy in 68 or 69, canceling the fair game policy. But if you read it, it's so strange. He's saying you can't use the words fair game anymore, but no policy has changed. So he's, he's saying, you know, you go, go ahead and destroy our enemies. Just don't call it fair game. So to this day, Scientology will tell, tells the press there is no fair game. It's all a myth being perpetrated by the critics. That if there was a fair game policy, it was canceled in 1968. I mean, it's just garbage because we know they engage in fair game. Mike Rinder ran fair game operations, and he's out now, and he could talk about it. And they do fair game to me all the time. So they've they've run some uh, the, uh, nothing on the level of Paulette, but the most the most sophisticated thing they try to do to me, and this was um, something I told Leah Remini on her show. At one point, they hired an out-of-work newspaper reporter to pretend that he was working on a story about my wife with her, and, and had contacted her employer and wanted to know why her employer had hired a terrorist. Now, the reason they were saying this was my wife at one time, who was also very interested in Scientology and everything, had engaged in the uh, online forums of the anonymous group, right? Like many of us were reading what people were saying, 
she was cracking jokes with people. And Scientology considers Anonymous to be a terrorist group. So they had, they, they literally put this reporter pretending that he was working for the Washington Post or something, I can't remember which publication, and saying, why did you hire a terrorist? So the point of that, of course, is to get her bosses all freaked out. And fortunately, they, didn't, they, they kept calm and realized that it was a stunt by Scientology. But this, you know, I have gotten a taste of that, of the kind of sort of uh, deceptive operation being run against me, the, the kind of thing Paulette went through. But then otherwise, you, you bring up the Internet, Leah Remini, um, Mike Rinder, Ron Miscavige, myself, were just constantly smeared online, just day in and day out. Twitter, Facebook, not Facebook, Twitter, and, and their websites they run about us, um, just Thanks, spewing all these lies about us. Virtually exactly the same kind of thing they did to Paulette 40 years ago. So they still do the same thing. Uh, but you're right. People, people will run across a website that's been, you know, they have several that are dedicated to just smearing me. And people will read it and within seconds go, oh, that's Scientology. So I try not to worry about it too much because people are, people know it's, it's, it's a lot different than it was in Paulette's day when, when very few people even knew what it was. Right. Yeah, you brought up Rick Ross earlier. He's when he's someone with um, with cults. I, I I like to to read his stuff and and watch his videos on YouTube. And I know that they have uh, they have a whole website dedicated to him online smearing him. Yeah, it's called a it's called a dead agent pack in in Scientology jargon. I first met, like I said, I met Rick back in '95, and I remember going to a talk he gave at, at ASU and in the back of the room. Scientology had put up this stack of papers for people to take. And it, 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 it's literally a pack of papers. They call it a dead agent pack with all kinds of documents trying to convince you that Rick Ross is a terrible human being. They even had a police report in there from uh, uh, he, when he was 15 years old. He had sold something from a, a department store he worked at, which he's, he's freely admits and is happy to talk about it. But they think that if they put that material out, Hubbard's theory was um, you basically kill them before they have a chance to tell you about Scientology. They're a dead agent. You won't listen to what they have to say because you have papers showing that they're disqualified because they've committed some crimes. So they have dead agent packs on all of us. And these days more, it's, a, it's an online thing. Uh, they have these websites and they, you know, uh, so, um, with with Mike, for example, Mike Rinder um, and his wife, his ex-wife, got in a verbal shouting match one night, and he was just trying to get past her to get to his car, and it he ended up there ended up being some incidental contact, as the police report clearly says, and his ex-wife's arm got a scrape, <clears throat> and he was just trying to push through a group of people with his with his current wife. And uh, it was just so you can hear a recording of it. It's a crazy scene, total accidental. And 24 hours a day, every day for years now, Scientology has put out all these announcements about how Mike Rinder is a wife beater. Because in that one incident, his ex-wife got a scrape on her arm as he was pushing past her to get in his car. I mean, that's, that's the level of, of deceit they practice in and you know Mike has addressed it fully online and talked about that night and it's a shame he has to because it's just this is what Scientology does they lie about him they lie about Leah 
They lie about me. Uh, but they, but again, this is what L. Ron Hubbard tells them to do. And they just, they don't know anything else. You know, actually how I, how I came across your website was a new Scientology. I think they were called ideal orgs. Um, right. Yeah. It was just opened up probably about an hour away from where, from where I am now. Cause I'm right in Columbus, bet- Ohio. Yeah. I'm right in between Columbus and Cleveland. Which I thought was really interesting because I didn't know that they were um, actively opening up new locations and stuff. So my next question was, where do you see them in the future, like 10 to 15 years from now? Well, they're in big trouble. I mean, they've been in big trouble for years. Um, They always have lied about their size. In 1969, they claimed to have 15 million members. And then in the 80s, they were saying they had 6 or 8 million. So what happened? What happened to all the other ones, right? right? It just shows you they were just lying about it all. They've never had millions. Um, the top former executives tell me Scientology reached its greatest extent around the year 1990 when they had about 100,000 people around the world. That's as big as Scientology ever got. It never came close to a million people. But they just always say that. We've got millions and millions of people. In 1991, the uh, Time Magazine cover story came out about them that was such a heavy hit. And I date Scientology's slow decline from that date. Uh, media um, media was chilled for a while after that because Scientology sued Time. But then eventually, media started paying more attention and, and people, people, got, people in Scientology were increasingly unhappy with the leader, David Miscavige, and his extreme fundraising. The shrinking and shrinking. By, night, by 2008, when a whole set of top Scientologists came out, one of them estimated for me that it was now down to 40,000. Wow. So by 2008, only 40,000. And then another top executive came out in 2013, and, I asked, and he had daily access to enrollment figures around the world. And I asked him, okay, so how many Scientologists today? And he said it's now under 20. So this is a tiny, tiny organization it is dying. And all the people that were hanging on because they missed Hubbard and the way things were in the 70s and, and just were trying to put up with Miscavige a little longer, they've all bailed. So the people that are left now are pretty hardcore. So I'm not sure we're going to see much of an exodus from now because people that are in there now, boy, they've put up with a lot of, of very difficult times. Right. So what does Miscavige do in order to make it look like they're expanding? Because they still... They still claim to be the fastest growing religion in the world. There's no evidence of it. In fact, in the United States, it's easy to get away with that claim because we don't measure that at all. But in places that do have a national census that asks about religion, places like Australia, England, Ireland, there's no question that the Scientology numbers are absolutely tiny. New Zealand just did their census, and they've got, I think, 30 million people. They've got 300 Scientologists, okay? So this is the true state of the organization. So New Zealand has got an ideal org, you know, just like Columbus. I bet there's there's 200 Scientologists in the entire state of Ohio. Why would Columbus get a, you know, by the time they get done with um, finding a building, buying the building, letting it sit and rot for a, a decade, then finally getting around to renovating it and spending all the money on those interiors, um, and then having their grand ceremony, they're probably 15 to $20 million into that project. Why would you do that in Columbus 
if there are virtually no Scientologists there. Because the reason is not, and also in Columbus, they're not opening a new church. They're replacing a less sort of sexy one, right? There was a, there was an org there, very utilitarian. They're, they're basically taking these, uh, you know, drab original ores and they're replacing them with these gleaming cathedrals. So it's not really expansion. There's a few they've opened in places they didn't have before in places like Harlem and Inglewood, but that's a separate issue. But anyway, so why are they doing that? And it's very clear to me that Miscavige has to do something to convince his big donors that the church is going in the right direction. And so he opens these buildings, even though they're not needed. And he does like four or five of them a year. This year was an exception. He's only done two so far this year, the one in Columbus and just the week before the one in Kansas City. Um, and, you know, he'll open more. And again, it's just, he's very, there's one thing he's very good at, and that is getting money out of very wealthy Scientologists. I keep track of this. And um, the rank and file may be getting tired of all the fundraising, but for some reason, he's never had more wealthy people who are happy to give him millions of dollars. I don't know how that works, but he's never had more people that get trophies for giving a million dollars or more. What is it about wealthy people that they're such easy marks? I don't know. There was this interesting article that when I was reading through your stuff, if you could, um, if you could just elaborate on it real quick, it was about a Scientology supporter that had sold off part of uh, a pharmaceutical company that he had worked for oh, and, yeah. and put the stocks yeah. in a, in a trust for Scientology. Could you elaborate on That's that? Cause right. that was, that was really, really interesting to me. Yeah. And there's an interesting coda to that. His name is Bob Duggan. Bob and Trish Duggan are longtime Scientologists. They were the richest Scientology couple in the world. Um, Bob had been an entrepreneur forever. He made a lot of money, but he really became wealthy um, because he had, the backstory is that they had lost a son to cancer and they wanted to spend, you know, invest in some technology that might help that. So they invested in some medical surgical technology for a while. And then they um, had bought this small uh, laboratory company that was trying to develop new cancer drugs called Pharmacyclics. And Bob put himself in a position where he was really running it totally. And then they got lucky. They, they, they got these fantastic results on one of their experimental drugs that just completely um, knocked out the cancer world. People were like, wow, those are great results. And so the value of pharmacyclics, you know, just skyrocketed overnight. And so in um, 2015, uh, AbbVie, the pharmaceutical giant, uh, bought pharmacyclics from Duggan for $21 billion, 22, $21, 22000000000 billion. So his own take from that was a couple of billion. So, you know, this guy that had always been a, you know, a successful entrepreneur making a few million dollars. Suddenly he's now got a billion. And, um, and, and it was right at that time that he and, he and Trish split up. They split up at the end of 2015. I know there was a recent story saying that their divorce was final in 2017, but they actually split up in the, at the end of 2015. And I noticed that when they did in the very last week of 2015, they created a foundation or they, they, they took it, a, 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 it, was, it was a pre-existing foundation, but it was doing nothing, had no money. And the last week of 2015, they put $60 million worth of that Abbey stock that he would have received in the, in the sale, right? Um, 
he put that into the, they put that in the foundation. And I got a hold of the foundation's papers and it said that they expected it to generate about five million in revenue in interest, investments, whatever, every year, and that the, the foundation would be granting that money only to the Church of Scientology and its affiliates. And I was like, wow, here's, I mean, these are already people that give millions and millions and millions of dollars to Scientology, but now that they're splitting up, they've created this entity that as long as Abby keeps selling Humira, the number one most profitable drug in the world, and keeps their stock price up, this foundation will have a few million every year to give Scientology. And I thought, wow, that's, that's one way to, that no matter how unstable things get between you and your wife as you're splitting up, at least Scientology is going to get it, right? Yeah. So I was impressed, and then I was, I was waiting and waiting, but that was the last week of 2015, and they, they didn't have time to give any money out. So I was really interested to see, for the tax year 2016, what they did with the money that that stock raised. And who in Scientology got that money? Well, we finally got the 2016 uh, re- return recently, and it was stunning. Uh, as Jeffrey Augustine said when he saw it, he said, "There's no way David Miscavige would be patient to just sit and wait for that few million dollars every year. No way." They gave Miscavige the entire 60 million in stock. Wow! They abandoned that. I they abandoned that idea of just holding it and giving Miscavige the proceeds from it. And they just gave Miscavige all of it. So Miscavige is now sitting on like $60 million worth of, it's actually worth a lot more now. The price went up, price of the stock went up. Tens of millions of dollars worth of of pharmaceutical stock that is going to be generating income for Scientology forever. You know, if you buy Humira, you're helping Scientology. It's really bizarre. And then just this uh, last a couple of weeks, uh, Tracy McManus, a great reporter over at Tampa Bay Times, she actually got Bob on the phone, and she was surprised that I was that he answered her phone. And he and and you know at one point Forbes was saying that he had given three hundred and sixty million total to the Church of Scientology, and he told her, "Oh no, it's a lot more than that." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but she didn't ask him about the uh, Abbey arrangement, but. But uh, but Bob Bob did clear. I I wondered if maybe Bob was walking away, but but no, he told Tracy no. He's still a dedicated Scientologist. But yeah, so that's how that's the bizarre way that the world's number one drug, Humira, is helping to fuel Scientology into the future. And it's indefinite. It, the, the way it sounds is they'll just get that money forever. I mean, as long as he just holds on to it and just, uh, you know, invest it wisely or, you know, get dividends or whatever, it'll just keep, you know, giving them money forever. Right. Yeah, that that's crazy. So Unbreakable Miss Lovely came out in 2015. Um, are you working on a new book or, or any other projects you can talk about? Well, the really fun thing for uh, Paulette and me was that um, uh, a couple years later, after that book came out, she came to me. And she said, you know, you really ought to have a book of the best of the Underground Bunker, my website, right? Um, because I've, you know, we're now on year eight and um, I write a story every day. So there's a lot of material out there that we've covered at the, at the website. She said, you really ought to have a book that has all of the best stories from that period that, you know, people may not be familiar with. And she wanted to publish it. And I told her, I said, I'll make you a deal. Um, I will do a book project with you where you publish my stuff from the underground bunker, 
But what I want in return is I want you to write introductions to the various sections. And she agreed. And so we came out with this book right about one year ago now. It's called Battlefield Scientology. And uh, it's published by Paulette Cooper. It's got introductions by Paulette Cooper and stories by Tony Ortega. That's really cool. Now, I, I really appreciate you doing with doing this with me today. Uh, th- this has been great. It's fun stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I I mean, we we started out the our, our series on it, and I'm like, well, we'll get this done in two parts, you know, and then we kept going. I'm like, oh, it's got to be three. And then I'm like, well, no, we're going to have to do four. To, and there's even stuff that, you know, we, we glossed over. It's, it's a huge subject. Yeah, there's so many subject. different avenues. And what I try to do with the Underground Bunker at TonyOrtega.org is um, keep up on the, on the new stuff. I mean, there's always new stuff, and there's these three new lawsuits now that are working their way through the courts and of course Scientology has answered them in the most scorched earth way possible. It's just really entertaining. Um, and so that, you know, it, it's a large body of knowledge to master. There's a lot of different things that happened in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and the nineties. And, uh, you know, just all kinds of different wild things. And it's good to know those things. It's good to know Hubbard's personal history. But as far as what's happening right now, you should check in every morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, at TonyOrtega.org and see what's going on. Perfect. Thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I'll uh, I'll put links to the book in the description for the podcast. Thanks, Ian. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. All Talk right. Later. All right. Bye.